The Datastack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack. As we said before, March is Transformations Month at Rudderstack, and you could win a $1,000 cash prize, a feature on this podcast, Talking to Casas and I, and more, by just contributing a transformation to our open source library. Go to our Twitter page at Rudderstack for more details. Good luck. Welcome back to the Data Sack Show. Costas, we have a special episode today because we're going to talk with someone who is building a tool that has a lot of really interesting data componentry to it, but is ultimately intended for marketers. So I think these are a little bit uncharted waters for you. Yeah, I mean, can be interesting, I think. But haven't we like talked about CDPs before? Is this like the first time? I think we have talked about CDPs, but I think it was in a shop talk. But today we're going to talk with Jason from Simon Data and they call themselves a CDP. So I think this is the first sort of official marketing flavored CDP. And he has a background actually in machine learning at a PhD level. So that's even more interesting to me because he obviously understands data on a deep level, but is building a tool for marketers. So I'm going to ask him about that and his background and some of the, you know, the ways that he thinks about marketing tools and the way they interact with data teams, because I think he has a unique perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very interested in like talking with him and like learning more about what exactly like a CDP has to do with the data to offer like its services, right? It's very easy like to, you know, just focus on like the user interface and talk only in terms of like, oh, okay, like we're just creating audiences. But this might be like at the end, like a very complicated process that's not only it's complicated like to describe it in SQL, but also something that it's, let's say, it has to be driven by someone who has no idea about like data or like writing SQL or writing code. So I think that's what makes like the problem like even more challenging. And it would be great like to chat with him about all these challenges and see exactly like how they can be addressed by a platform like Simon Data. Yep, I agree. Well, let's dig in and chat with Jason. Yeah, let's do it. Jason, welcome to the Data Stack Show. Super excited to chat today. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure to be here. All right, well, give us your background. So. We want to hear about Simon Data, but you actually have a background in working with data. So tell us, you know, give us your history and then what led you to starting Simon Data. Yeah, I mean, I'm a reformed machine learning researcher. In a previous life, you know, I completed a PhD in machine learning. You know, it's actually how I met, you know, my co-founder, Matt Walker, and CTO at Simon Data today. We've been working together for over 19 years now. It's pretty hard to believe, you know, anniversary 20 will be coming next fall. Wow. Yeah, you know, but you know, I always joke. Uh, it took me about five years into my PhD to realize the value in data isn't in the algorithms or the machine learning. It's how the data is actually used in practice. Yeah, you know, my previous business was an ad tech product. Yeah, you know, that you know, was acquired by Etsy, and through that experience, I really just saw you know the power of enterprise data, centralized data, and how big data can really be a disruptive source, disruptive force. You know, the core thesis behind you know Simon really brings that you know to today's cloud, you know, cloud enabled you know, environment. You know, cloud-enabled you know, data is a huge force. I think you know, I certainly was not expecting you know, this you know, seven, eight years ago when we first started the business. And today, our thesis at Simon is really you know, that of being the application layer you know, for a next generation of data-driven marketing to really rethink what a CDP is and what their data requirements are to affect 
you know, better lifetime value, you know, better ROAS, you know, and better conversion rates. Yeah, super helpful. Okay, let's, couple of terms in there that I think would be super helpful. So let's start by breaking down what a CDP is, you know, because this show is all about data and customer data platform is a term that is not new. It's been around for quite some time, but it's really easy for people, you know, when the term CDP comes up to think of different things, right? On one extreme end of the spectrum, people, you know, may think about this is a tool that sends marketing messages to users, right? Like a push notification or an email. On the other end of the spectrum, people would, you know, may think this is just infrastructure that processes customer data. And then, of course, there's a huge spectrum in between. Can you help provide some clarity to our listeners on the term CDP and maybe even help us understand like Simon's philosophy and where you fit into the spectrum? Yeah, it's a great question. And at the end of the day, the category is undoubtedly wide. You know, I was you know, talking yeah. the other day with you know, Sumia Rutterstack's you know, CEO. You know, we were just talking about you know, how our you know, joint strategy and vision are actually fairly complementary. You know, which is unusual for you know, two vendors in the category to get together. You know, I'm very close with you know, Michael Katz and Particle CEO. Again, you know, another vendor in the CDP category where we actually share quite a few customers in common. You know, when we look at CDP, you know, it really starts with asking, you know, how do you enable end business stakeholders, marketers in particular, to be data-driven? And with this, what are the marketing activities that require deep, bespoke, and specific access to an evolving world of data? You know, that starts with segmentation, but for us, Simon, that also includes personalization, that includes experimentation, you know, and that finally includes thinking about all the marketing channels uh, yeah, that exist today. And how do you optimize across them in an asynchronous way, you know, you know via something that you know, marketers call orchestration, which is very different than data orchestration. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you think about, you know, the data side or how does Simon operate on the data side, right? Because if we think about, you know, or maybe actually a better way to ask this question would be, let's say I'm on a data team and one of my internal customers at my company is marketing, right? And let's say they're using Simon. What does my relationship with them look like? And how does Simon, you know, sort of how do I interact with? Can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, the, really the way to think about Simon as someone, you know, as a data practitioner, data engineer, data analyst, data scientist, you know, who has, you know, a cloud data warehouse, Redshift, BigQuery, Snowflake set up. You know, is we provide the infrastructure, you know, you know and the core ETL tooling to, to help your marketing team get started around the problems they need to solve. You mm. know, that starts with, you know, you know, you know, holistic modeling around identity. Yeah, you know, that starts with, you know, thinking about, you know, treating batch data in your warehouse and real-time data, you know, separately. And that ends with building a customer 360, not, you know, for your warehouse, but for your marketing teams, you know, to really... You know, have that view of the customer relative to the application they need to, you know, that they need to affect, you know, as a marketing organization. Yeah, got it. That makes total sense. And so Simon's actually doing the building or augmenting the build of that 360 degree view of the customer on behalf of the marketer. That's 100% right. Yeah, got it. Super interesting. Okay. I have a question for you here. Because you're so familiar with and are building, you know, your products for the use cases that these marketers want, you know, to your point, 
you know, data is in and of itself, is it valuable? No, right? Like, what do you actually do with it that drives value, right? For our listeners who work on a data team, and maybe even the ones that serve marketing teams as an internal customer, but maybe aren't as familiar with like what is happening at the end of the line with the data, you know, because maybe their role is more around like modeling, packaging, cleaning, whatever those pieces are. And then, you know, sort of delivering this data product to a team, to an endpoint, to a tool. What are the top things that you think are important for someone in that role on a data team to know about what's happening at the end of the line or sort of the last mile as marketing teams are using this data? 100%. And I'll answer this question, you know, Eric, by you know, throwing out a term that marketing talks about all the time and then mapping it back into data terms that the listeners of the show may probably know with a bit more familiarity. You know, so what marketers care about is something called the customer journey. Yeah, the customer journey, you know, is the interactions, you know, that, you know, an individual has with a brand and business Uh, from that first touch point, you know, you see an ad on Facebook or you see an ad in the open web, you know, a month later, you might click through a different ad and you interface with a website and you read about it for, you know, 15 minutes. You then read it, you then listen to the, the business, the company's podcast, you know, for an hour. And then maybe a few weeks later. You finally you know, dive into some of the documentation or material, you know, and then eventually you might sign up and be a paying customer. And then there's sort of the you know, entire you know, engagement path downstream from there. You know, and the first problem that we saw from a data perspective is really you know, thinking about how data is modeled from, you know, sorry, how the user's identity is modeled. You know, those first interactions are second party data. You know, these are interactions that yeah, that, you know, that aren't even anonymous users, they're non-users. You know, they happen completely outside the realm of the data as we have it today for you know, most folks who are running data warehouse. You, with that first touch point, you know, you know, on the website, you know, that would be a fully anonymous customer. You know, the second touch yep. point, you know, might be a fully anonymous customer from a different device, so a different cookie. And then at some point, you know, these paths may converge together, you know, and those anonymous, you know, browsers may link, you know, to a single known user, you know, and then there are all sorts of considerations down, downstream there around householding and beyond. You know, and what Simon does is it stitches together the customer journey and from a data perspective, you know, builds those identity associations. And it does so in a way that's actually modeled directly in your warehouse. You know, we are you know, built natively on top of Snowflake, you know, and you know, those models are made available for our customers to have full visibility. And then our platform deploys directly on top of that you know, to enable our marketing teams to see and to have that full continuity across the entire journey. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so I'm just going to say this back so I make sure I understand it because this is really interesting. So, because, well, actually, let me sit back and say, you know, having been involved in this kind of work, you know, hand rolling it, generally, when you talk about building an identity in the warehouse, which, you know, is, I'm a huge fan of because you have visibility and you can manage the edge cases for your specific business and, you know, patterns of customer usage or whatever. But ultimately, you're talking about an unbelievable amount of SQL that ends up being really hard to maintain over time. And, you know, the trap that I've fallen into multiple times is that inevitably there's someone in the organization or a group of people who have tribal knowledge about, you know, how this thing works and, you know, the output and, you know, whatever. And so it sounds like you actually sort of remove the need for data teams to, you know, to hammer through all that SQL and have something that's difficult to maintain, but you maintain 
the visibility like in Snowflake so I can see all of that? It's 100% right. And the way we view the world is we break data problems down into one of two buckets. And this directly comes from my experience building data teams and dealing with all sorts of complex data challenges that come you know, from, you know, the, you know, as anyone on or, or who's listening to this show has you know, seen either on the front lines or managing teams or data functions. You know, the problems that are bespoke to the business around, uh, around collection, around aggregation, around you know, core metric definition. And then there are co- problems that are, you know, really have a degree of consistency across you know, any, you know, you know, any brand. You know, and our strategy is to leverage the latter and uh, to sit on top of you know, all, the wor- all the great work that's happening that you know, as a CDP, we couldn't possibly own. You know, while you know, you're bringing efficiencies you know, and generalization capabilities you know, to the latter. Yeah, so yeah, you know, you know, that's really sort of how we think about you know, things you know, at a high level. And you know, the number one point of value that we bring to our end customers is speed. You know, you have data in 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 your warehouse. You know, it may not be perfect. You know, but guess what? You know, you can get to value in a few days, maybe a few weeks at worst. You know, let's not build out you know all your infrastructure, uh, and let's look at where you are today. And look, data is not. An end state is journey. You know, no matter where you are today, you know, let's get to you know, let's get to value. And then as you improve, you know, as you you bring on a, a you know a platform like Rudderstack and have better you know, granularity around you know the data that you're collecting from your website and mobile application, that's another you know, level up in your journey that you know we can integrate into our model. You know, for us, it's all about you know staying lock lockstep in the data capabilities that you know, our customers have. Yeah, you know, while providing you know, incremental use cases all along to, you know, our end users. Super interesting. I want to dig into the difference between, you mentioned sort of bespoke business needs versus commonalities across businesses. And Costas knows that for some time I've brought up, he may be tired of hearing it. I have this theory that, you know, when it comes to data models, you, there's probably like less than 10 that every business could use, right? With like light modification, right? So like e-commerce or B2B SaaS or whatever. And of course there's differences, right? But when you talk about, you know, just sort of the core model that you use as a starting point, there actually is a lot of commonality, right? And a lot of the differences that businesses create when they get bespoke are actually more around around syntax. Do you, is Is that kind of what you're getting at in that you can provide like time to value or like help teams move faster when it comes to it because you're acting on some of those commonalities? Yeah. And look, I think, you know, hundred percent, and I'll add a couple caveats to that. You know, the other dimension isn't even business model specific. It's just, you know, you know, marketing, you know, dynamic specifically. Let's, let's look at, you know, you know, let's look at all the funnels across, you know, each of your you know, core marketing channels, you know, uh, you know, across, you know, paid and own and direct mail and email and push, you know, there's a degree there's a high degree of commonality here, especially across you know tools as well. Yeah, and look, uh, you know, if nine of nine of our ten customers are extracting data into their Snowflake with Fivetran, uh, it all looks the same. You know, yeah, and, and, yeah. You know, and piecing that together, you know, and interestingly, Fivetran is you know building canonical ad tech views, but yeah, you know, our views all you know are very hyper focused and mapping bad to our own application. You know, you know, to get to you know to end value as as fast as possible. You know, the other dimension to this, which I think. You know, I, you know, which I push back on a little bit, Eric, in terms of consistency across business models is when you look at a lot of enterprises today, 
you know, they have data, which is as complex. And I, you know, anyone who follows Chad Sanderson on LinkedIn, you know, there's a huge movement around data collection and, you know, for runner tech customers, clean slate, you're recollecting data. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you have, you know, if you have a system, you know, which is 25 years old, okay, you don't, you know, you know, actually being able to go and re-instrument the code, yeah. you know, it just ain't happening. You know, yeah. you can talk about it on LinkedIn all you want, you know, but yeah, you know, it's a multi-year build out. And quite frankly, I think reverse engineering, you know, the data as it comes in is sort of state of the art for many of these you know, larger businesses today. Yeah. You know, and it really is the only path. You know, so I think there is, you know, when we sort of look at, and I respond to your point, I think, you know, you know, in some sense, our strategy is if you think about how data teams at large enterprises have done all that work, you know, and the data is certainly not perfect, you know, but there are large teams of data people who are data teams who are specifically tasked with get, making it one step better every single day. Yeah, uh, you know, let's take that as an input, you know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and then apply a lot of our you know standard transformations in a way that, you know, you know aligns you know, directly with the core applications that you know our end users need to affect. Yep, super helpful. One, one last question for me because with the mention of transformation, I know Casas has a lot of questions about the data model, but one question I have is: Do you loop? back into the warehouse because one interesting thing about you know sort of last mile tooling is that it's actually creating touch points on the customer journey but a lot of times those can be a terminal destination so do you loop back into the warehouse and feed the model in a loop yeah 100% i mean it's i mean look like i think you know ultimately you know as you know, someone who's run data teams in the past you know, i couldn't imagine building an application that did you know, that wasn't anything but a good citizen of data on both sides you know, so let's make sure that you know, the modeling integration paths are out of the box and straightforward and extensible. Let's make sure that any and all data that you know, the platform you know, collects or creates you know, or reports on for that matter, you know, is then you know, you know, shared back into the environment. Very cool. All right, Costas, all yours. Thank you, Eric. All right, Jason, let's, let's start the conversation by talking a little bit about the data that is used by a CDP, right? Like if we want to build like a CDP, what kind of data we are looking for? You mentioned earlier that at the end, what the marketer wants is what cares really about is like the journey that the user has with the brand and like the company. But how is this represented in data, right? Like everyone understands what like a journey is, but like what kind of data we need to recreate digitally this this journey? Look, I think, I, I think there's sort of, when we think about data to marketing applications, there are two types of data. There's data that, you know, that joins, you know, that, that directly has a customer identifier and there's data that does not. And I think one of the poorly understood sort of, you know, points that marketers understand, but don't really communicate back to data teams is how critical customer data is. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, in this broader marketing journey. Ultimately, mm-hmm. it's not about what the customer does, it's how the customer interacts with inventory. You know, it's about how, you know, all the metadata, you know, around that inventory, you know, whether it's, you know, whether the customer is browsing, you know, homes on the web or, or buying widgets in e-commerce context, you know, what's the property, you know, you know, what category is the widget in, you know, what's the price point of the home, you know, what geo is the home in, you know, is the home in, in a geo that's, you know, primarily, you know, you know, you know, you know vacation homes. Yeah, or is it in a large you know, suburban development with great? Yeah, you know, that kind of data is critical to understand the journey. 
And it really, when it comes down to, you know, to segmenting and you know, identifying you know, audiences, it's critical for that as well. You know, and I think this is sort of, you know, when I sort of think about a lot of the rich data that you know, drives you know, some of the really interesting use cases for you know, assignment data's customers, it's data that actually doesn't even originate on the customer. It's data that joins into the customer. You know, and then I think you know, the challenge is how do you build you know, a, a, a UI you know, that allows you know, the end user you know, to access this data in a way that's you know, you know, nine out of 10 times no code and low code when necessary. You know, because ultimately, I think you know, the name of the game today you know, with you know, so many rich you know, cloud data warehouse-enabled environments is speed. You know, it's not, the question isn't, you know, can a data team build a segment? You know, because like the answer is yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, you know, the question is how long and furthermore, you know, who's actually responsible for building the segment, you know, and are they enabled to do it in a way that can take a few minutes instead of a few weeks? All right. First of all, let's, let's talk a little bit about some definitions because you use the term inventory, right? And here we are like also like big part of our audience is like engineers and data engineers. So they might not be like, so, you know, like don't know, like all the marketing terminology. So what is inventory? Like when you say like, when you're talking about inventory, what is this? It's any database object that doesn't key into a customer. Okay. You know, and anything that can ultimately have an interaction with a customer. You know, so, you know, you know, that's really what it is in generality and practicality. It's what the customer can buy, what the customer can browse, what the customer can view, the content that a customer you know, might read. Mm -hmm. And here we are talking about, let's say, assets that are only digital, right? Or there is also like data that might be coming, let's say, from, I don't know, like physical stores and the interactions that the user might have there. Like, is this also something that is happening? A, a, a thousand percent. I mean, it's, you know, you know, there's a question, that, you know, sort of give a marketing application, even though I know you're trying to bring it back up to the, the data use case, but, you know, you can build, you can identify a set of customers who, are, who have an outstanding support ticket in the last month. Or you can ask, you know, let's find everyone who has an outstanding support ticket of type X, where type X is something that you really messed up on and you want to be able to remediate quickly. The support ticket might have a category or a classification, you know, and X is the classification. And S is the business requirement of identifying every user, you know, you know through which when you do this two-way join, I guess, you know, you know, satisfies that condition. Uh-huh. And you mentioned also something else. You talked about like, there's like a great distinction. There is like anonymous data and data that have like an identity, right? Like that we can attribute to a specific user that we know some information about that person. Can, can you tell us a little bit more of like how each one of these two categories of data is used and if there is like some difference there? And do these data ever let's say merge, like, is it part of like the process to connect an identity to the anonymous data that we That's the hardest part of the whole process is actually thinking about, you know, you know how, you know, how identity merges and evolves. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, look, ultimately it's not a linear process. You can have, you, know, you can have two objects that, you know, have identity type anonymous that can merge into identity type node. You know, and then you can have a third identity type known that can merge into that as well. And the identities can change, uh, you know, and then there's all sorts of, of corner cases that have to be dealt with. And there are all sorts of generalized cases that are required to actually do the problem properly. Yeah, but, yeah, but hundred percent, it's, you know, th there's real complexity here and the bookkeeping, you know, is, you know, is, you know, requires some meticulous domain specific understanding. Mm -hmm. And this is like, 
part of like the CDP responsibility to do, like to reconcile like the identity and like create this identity, I don't know, like database or graph or like, I don't know. We'll talk more about how it looks, but whose responsibility is like to construct and maintain this identity? So this is the million dollar question, Costas. You know, and I think you, know, you asked the reverse ETL guys, and you know, Kishash, I saw him the other day for, you know, at, at a conference in, in, in the Barry, we're talking about this at length. Yeah, look, I think five years from now, I think you know, the world is going to look a lot different. Yeah, but mm-hmm. let me tell you how it is today. You know, today, you know, I'd imagine you know, nine out of 10 listeners, if not you know, 49 out of 50 listeners, you know, they have the data in the warehouse. Yeah, when it's relatively clean, they probably have some reasonable metric definitions and they're probably outgrowing their looker, you know, you know, their looker models and trying to move it upstream and, you know, and they're adopting DBT and you know, using best practices. Yeah, the fact of the matter is, you know, maturity around identity modeling you know, today. And by the way, you can't you can't identify model identity. You can't build a customer 360 because this, by definition, isn't an integrated view of your data plus your identity to enable marketing. If the identity isn't done properly, then the marketing application, the customer 360, can't happen. And maturity today across you know, data engineers, data analysts, data scientists, and certainly open source tooling, you know, along with any sort of dedicated providers that do this, is incredibly low. Uh, you know, and the challenge is, you know, and this doesn't mean that, you know, a, a motivated data engineering team can't take this on as their H1 project uh, yeah. and devote a, a set of folks and figure it out and ship it, you know, at some point next year. But what it does mean is that it's a big effort, it's a science experiment, there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk. At the end of the day, there's a, a lot of detail that's still, you know, the unknown unknowns that lie ahead, you know, for so many folks who roll this on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, so our strategy is is look, yeah, you know, we understand this. Yeah, you know, we want to get everyone from zero to one. You know, and one, you know, you know, you know, one can be a small step or a big step, you know, depending on you know, on the eyes of the beholder. You know, and then you know, the key there is extensibility and enabling. You know, look, every one of these corner cases can change from business to business. You know, mm-hmm. the general approach, you know, there's a high degree of consistency, but when you really get into how things work, you know, there is a level of bespokeness. You yeah. know, but you know, if you can't go from zero to one, don't try to go from you know nine to ten. Yeah. No, makes total sense. All right. So, okay. We have talked about like the data a little bit, like and the identity. So you mentioned the data warehouse. And my question is like all these data and the identity, like how is it represented inside the data warehouse? Like what's, let's say if I set up today, like a data warehouse and put like some data on top of it, like what's and look inside the data warehouse, what I'm going to see there. I mean, it's all a matter of what you have, you know, and what you have is, you know, most likely a reflection of what's important for the, you know, and where you're going is going to be a reflection of how your business teams, you know, put pressure and align strategy with, you know, your initiatives to further build out your data warehouse. You know, so again, I think, you know, I turn that question around and ask, you know, what should the data journey be? You know, you know, as a business, you know, you know, is looking to evolve, you know, where they are today. You know, which is probably, you know, all the data is there, you know, some metrics are defined, you know, but, you know, some of the aggregates, you know, some of the, you know, the nuance and the specifics around, you know, around various aspects of the business are, you know, still on the one or two year roadmap. You know, how do you prioritize that roadmap? You know, how do you take what you have, you know, and drive value today? And how do you align the interests of the business stakeholders, you know, with the strategic priorities across the data team, you know, to make sure that you're being incremental? Um, you know, certainly going into you know next year in this macroeconomic you know climate, I think there's going to be very little patience 
you know, for, you know, for big science experiments and wandering strategies that don't align with what absolutely needs to happen to, you know, show, you know, clear revenue. Mm -hmm. Are there some minimal requirements or like best practices in terms of like what data should exist in the data warehouse before someone starts the journey of building a CDP on top of that data? I mean, so there's a quite, I mean, the first question to ask is there's our strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. And other CDPs have other strategies as well. You know, look, our strategy starts with our customers looking at the warehouse as a source of truth for what they're trying to do. You know, if you are a Salesforce shop, you know, this is irrelevant, you know, probably to 99 out of 10 people on you know, the podcast, but if you're a Salesforce shop, you know, and you know, yeah, you know, you're going to buy Salesforce CDP because it collects other Salesforce data. You know, if you have you know, big gaps around data collection from web and mobile, then you're going to look at a solution like Rudder and, and that will, you know, populate data in your warehouse. You know, and while Rudder Stack activates, you know, you know, our perspective is to, you know, in some sense, you know, take a view of data as well outside of what Rudder Stack might be collecting uh, and look at, you know, a broader view of data that exists within the warehouse, you know, that might touch offline context and beyond. If you come to us and you have nothing today, you have no cloud data warehousing, no cloud data warehouse strategy beyond that, you know, it's not a fit. You know, you're going to want something else, you know, something that's out of the box, I can just provide end-to-end -end value, you know, that starts with data collection and ends with activation. But, you know, if building a data strategy, you know, that's extensible, you know, is core to what you're trying to affect, you know, then, you know, you know, we have a story that can at least be considered. All right. And okay, let's assume here that I have my data in the data warehouse. The data looks good, clean. We make sure that like we have all the identities there, like we can act upon this data. Like we, now we have to do something right with this data. So what's next? Like, how does, let's say, the life cycle of like a CDP looks like? What's like after we have the data that we need and we can access it with like Simon data, right? Like, what are we going to do next? What the marketer is going to do next with this data? 100%. So in marketing terms, there's a buzzword. And I know you guys are going to beat me up for even going here. In marketing terms, there's a buzzword around something called one-to-one -one personalization. And I'd bet that actually 10 out of 10 people on you know, on the podcast are familiar with you know all the the, the marketing yeah sort of you know mumbo jumbo you know, we like to you know, use a term that we call one to one data okay what does this yeah. mean this means that you know if I'm a marketer you know I want to have access to the data that I need you know to build segments and to personalize I want it in a one to one context you know I want you know I want an application that is actually designed you know, to integrate and ingest and affect segmentation on the data at the granularity at which the data exists. Uh, one of the challenges with approaches like reverse ETL you know, is you have, you, know, you, you have your data in Snowflake, congratulations, high fidelity, it's fully clean. Data's never fully clean, but it's fully clean. You know, and you, know, you have you know, rich schemas that represent you know, you know, event history, online, offline, you know, object metadata, inventory, you name it. You know, and suddenly you need to reverse ETL that data into your marketing tool. But guess what? Your marketing tool is built on MongoDB. And suddenly you're faced with a set of, of pretty difficult design trade-offs around what data am I now throwing out? And then you go to your marketing team and you have these you know, lengthy conversations around, well, what are you trying to do? And the marketing team doesn't know, okay, they just want to be agile. And they're also not data engineers. So it's incredibly yep. hard for them to have a productive conversation. Yeah. So, you know, to, your, you know, to answer your question, you know, directly, Costas, you know, you're really our vision 
you know, is to you know, put the data in front of you know, the end business stakeholder. Yeah, you know, and you know, we've invested you know materially around you know incredibly flexible schemas, you know, and powerful segmentation capabilities that allow our end users to you know access the data and use the data you know in the finest of granularities. Give an example here around you know what this loss of data fidelity or throwing out data, yeah, you know, actually can look like. You know, yeah, if you you know if you have a segmentation layer that can only represent you know, say the number of purchases, you know, or the or the dollar value of the purchases that you've made over the last year, you know, but if you have a question, you know, that's effectively, let's say, I want to identify anyone who's bought a full price item over $100 in the last 12 months, well, suddenly that's going to require, you know, going back to the source and doing that analysis. But if instead you can actually, you know, you have the interfaces in the application that allows uh, for that data to be queried directly by the end business stakeholder without SQL, then suddenly you've saved an entire round trip. You know, which if you have functioning you know, feedback loop between marketing and data can be you know, within a day, but for most enterprises, it's a sprint period, which is a couple of weeks or a month. You know, and then you have to ask, how often does this happen? And the answer is it happens all the time. And this is really you know, where a lot of the friction comes into. You believe in a world where you know, data teams and marketing teams collaborate very, you know, in, in a very productive way, yeah, you know, but we also believe in a world where, you know, when you look at roles and responsibilities and workflows, they should be separated in a way, you know, that allows each of them to do their jobs independently. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's like a very good example. What is segmentation? What does it, like, I want to make sure that, like, and try also to talk about segmentation first from the marketing perspective, and then... I'll ask the same question also, like from the data engineering perspective, right? Like, and try like to communicate this like to both audiences out there. But let's start like with the marketeer. What does it mean? I'm a marketeer and I want to segment my data. What does this mean? Yeah. So the inputs to a segmentation interface are you know properties on the customer or fields that you know that relate to the customer. You know, so we've gone through enough examples over the last, yeah, you know, I guess 35 minutes here. You know, that I won't rehash them again. And the outputs are a subset of your customers that display a set of properties. Mm -hmm. uh, the magic behind segmentation, you know, you know, manifests in terms of a powerful UI, allows mm -hmm. you know, end business stakeholders, you know, to filter and refine, you know, that set of 100% of your customers, you know, you know, mm -hmm. across their behaviors, across how they purchase inventory, across any of the objects and entities in your data warehouse, and to whittle that down to 2.3% you know, of customers who you experienced or exhibited behaviors, Y or Z, you know, or any conditions that are specified, specifiable within the UI. And the basic optimization problem around segmentation, you know, is to provide a data model and an interface, which is as powerful as possible. Yeah, you know, you know, out of the last hundred questions, you know, that, you know, a marketing team has tried to do in their segmentation UI, how many were they able to actually, you know, figure out and do on their own? Yeah. Uh, how many did they just say, oh, well, I give up? too hard on how many do they actually then have to go and escalate to the data team, you know, to add new fields to get it done, you know, because <laughs> the generous case of segmentation is to have a segmentation UI with, you know, with one field, you know, which is the latest field that your data team put in. And when you want to segment, you ask your data team to build some thousand line query, they build a thousand line query, it's ready two weeks later, hopefully it's correct. You create a new segment with condition X and then you're done. Yeah. And why is this like such a hard problem, like why we need like a user interface that it's 
so sophisticated for the marketer like to create these segments? Why it's like such a hard problem? Look, I mean, it all comes down to use cases, and it all comes down yeah. to, you know, it, it all comes down to, you know, you know, especially in 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 today's macro environment, you know, where understanding look, customer behaviors are customer behaviors. You know, they're mm -hmm. changing all the time. Yeah, you know, when COVID hit, first hit, everyone went and everyone went indoors. You know, and then everyone thought it was over. You know, and then Delta came. You know, and then Omicron came, and now everyone has RSV apparently, and the hospitals are overflowing. Yeah, you know, and on top of that, the, the economy is going south. Yeah, you know, and all the data and the assumptions around you know the twelve field the twelve fields of customer data that existed in the fall of twenty nineteen those assumptions are gone. You know, they're violated, I should say. Yeah, you know, and. Yeah, you know, in today's world requires a lot, much, much deeper access to data to you know to really better understand um, uh, and, and respond to you know the needs of the customers. And you know, if you look at you know, the composition of ninety nine percent of operational marketers today, they're not technical. You know, mm -hmm. you know, even if they know SQL, you know, they need a composable, you know, and reusable you know construct that's easy to use, so the rest of their team can have visibility in it, so their CMO can look and be like, yep. what are we actually doing here? Yeah, it's fundamentally a non-technical. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like both from you and Eric, like during the conversation today about complex queries, like just like a few moments ago, you talked about like the data team that will go and like build like a query of like a thousand lines, let's say it will take like about a week and like all these things. What makes the process of like creating these queries on the data warehouse for this particular, for the particular like work that's like a CDP like does, right? Like so complicated and hard. And I'm talking like from the, we can assume here like a technical person who has to do this job, right? Like we're not talking about like marketers, like, because obviously when we are talking about like non-technical personas, like they, they shouldn't have like to write any code, right? But still it seems that there is like intrinsic, let's say complexity in representing the processing for the data warehouses and executing this logic over there. So why is this happening? Like why it's challenging? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll, I'll sort of maybe provide, you know, a mini segmentation one-on-one -on -one tutorial over the next two minutes to Okay. This, that would be awesome. Like, that. Like here. Yeah. There's, you know, you can build a segment of anyone who bought in the last year. Yeah. But in reality, that's not how it works. You know, marketers for one have a notion of personas. You know, personas might be early adopters of your product. And the def definition might be, you know, anyone who's bought a product within seven days of launch. Personas might be longtime customers. There may be folks who have, you know, you might, there might be high margin customers. Anyone who's, uh, you know, purchased over $300 across a set of high margin products, you know, with margins above 40%. Um, you know, and every business is different. You know, BarkBox, you know, was one of our first customers. Actually, I think it's a customer we share with Rudderstack. You know, they have, they have core personas running, you know, heavy chewers. You know, people who you have dogs that very aggressively chew their their toys. You know, there are not many businesses out there, you know, with that kind of, of segment, but that's a core persona for them. It defines their brand and everything they do should, you know, in some sense, you know, considers that. You know, the first layer is around, you know, what we call base segments from our platform or core personas. On top of that, there are exclusions. You know, these are people who you don't want to market to. If someone is actively... You know, if someone is actively engaging with your support team and they're really not happy with you know with the business, you don't want to send them promotional offers. Okay. You know, if you know there's sometimes can be compliance issues or legal issues where you need to exclude people from audiences as well. Uh, you know, so here are two sets of segments that on top of anything you might want to do need to be considered an overlay. 
And then on top of that, you have all the examples that I just went through that require segments to consider behavioral, you know, non, you know, you know, non-customer objects, you know, and then bespoke customer behavior, you know, either in the last few minutes or in the last few years. Okay, that makes total sense. All right. And one last question for me, and then I'll give like the microphone back to Eric, because we're getting close to the end of this episode. So you mentioned, let's say, a foundational part of like the architecture that you are operating on is the data warehouse, right? So from the data warehouses that we have today, like BigQuery, Snowflake, Redshift, etc., what you would like to see in the future to be implemented by them that would make you happy for the stuff that you are doing at Simon Data, like as a CDP that has to work on top of these technologies? Real time as well. You know, I think you know, technologies like you know, Kafka and Confluent you know, have had good adoption you know, in certain pockets of large businesses that have massive throughput requirements. SQL as a standard, you know, SQL mm-hmm. as, a, as a language doesn't really map very well to real-time data. I think as a category, we have real work to do. And it's not because an infrastructure problem, you know, it's just you know, a core abstraction problem. You know, and you know, for, you know, for us, you know, when we think about the world of data, you know, you know, we, we can route real-time data to the warehouse, but it comes with real problems. And every year those problems get better, you know, but again, the basic abstraction problems around SQL aren't getting any better. Um, you know, so I, you know, when I sort of look, you know, had, you know, you know, you know what, you know, when I ask, you know, into the future, you know, a big question we always ask is, you know, what does cloud-enabled real-time data look like? And, you know, you know can there be another, you know, set of you know, players that, you know, are equal to scale as a Snowflake or BigQuery, but instead, you know, bring a similar set of capabilities, you know, to real time in the cloud, you know, and I think, you know, it's going to, you know, and it could very well be, you know, you know, you know, it could very well be Rutterstack, you know, but, you know, we're through, we're certainly not there today. You know, so, you know, while I think the warehouse, you know, and the cloud data warehouse represents a generalized, you know, an extensible platform for us to, you know, to operate a lot of core operations on, uh, you know, real time is still sort of this end around, you know, that, that we fully support, you know, but doesn't have nearly the type of elegant solution as I would expect to, you know, evolve in the coming years. Yeah, makes total sense. All right, Eric, all yours. Okay, time for one more question, although I often break that rule. Jason, I'm interested to know, we've talked a ton about, you know, Simon data and all of the use cases there, but, you know, you are a recovering, you know, machine learning Machine learning algorithm builder who studied at a PhD level. If we just step back and look at the data landscape, you know, as someone who has built data teams and worked with data tools, is there anything out there that just excites you in the data space in general? You know, whether or not it's related to Simon or you know any of the other technologies we talked about. A hundred percent. I mean, look, I'll answer your question indirectly, and hopefully, when I get to the end, you can tell me whether it's a satisfactory answer. You know, when I look <laughs> at the problem of but I look at machine learning problems, I see two camps. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're problems where the inputs can be fully describable. Yeah, so machine translation, computer vision, self-driving cars, yeah, you know, all the information that you know, a human has, yeah, a machine has. There are other problems yep. that are not fully describable. 
you know, yeah, you know, I'm a customer of BarkBox. Like, am I having a good experience? Well, like, you know, last night my dog threw up the toys. Like, BarkBox is never going to figure that out, and marketing teams are never going to figure that. out. And maybe the support team will figure that out. You know, but you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of, of clues and context that can be used to understand some of the generalizations and you know the broader macros and you know zooming that in you know as specifically as possible. And when I look at the future of AI and machine learning, it's about taking all the clues that we have, you know, in, in a depiction of a world that is inherently, you know, in, and then filling in the gaps. You know, so I think, look, you know, mapping that back into to trans, look, I think the stuff, I think the way chat GPT is interactive is interesting. Obviously, you know, chat GPT doesn't know, has no idea what, you know, my intentions are, what my questions are. Sure. So it's a back and forth interactive context. Yeah, but I think by and large, yeah, you know, you know, what's most exciting to me is anything that has a human interaction element to the machine learning. You know, so in some sense, the problems we're talking about on the show, you know, the feedback loop is around you know, develop, developing a hypothesis, leveraging the data and the AI that might drive it, and then testing in the market and then iterating. Yep. I love it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. We should we need to do a whole episode on chat GPT, but that's a whole other well, if, you, if, if you guys want if you guys want downloads, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, probably. All right. Well, Jason, this has been wonderful. I learned a ton. I know our listeners learned a ton as well. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, Costas. You know, one of my big takeaways is that I'm so glad to finally hear about a marketing tool that, as Jason described it, is a good citizen on either end of the data pipeline, both in terms of ingestion and then pushing data back in, because that's the whole challenge with so many marketing tools is their terminal destinations, which has been just a huge pain point for me over the years, specifically in terms of data infrastructure. That was great. And I'm super excited to hear that kind of thinking is being done, you know, even for tools that are built specifically for marketers. Yeah. I'll keep the last part of the conversation that we had about real time and streaming data and that this is let's say the next frontier of innovation when it comes like to data infrastructure for marketeers and in a way also let's say like the next frontier for the data infrastructure out there right like because as he said the the technology is not there yet like yeah, we can ingest real-time data into the data warehouse, but how we do it, how fast we do it, how hard it is to do it, uh, and what kind of tools we have to work with real-time data still has like a lot of space for improvement. So I'll keep that and I'll be looking around to see how the industry is going to address that stuff. All right. Well, we will keep an eye out and we will catch you on the next one. Subscribe if you haven't. And of course, tell a friend. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.